Well, good morning, First Free. Feels really good to say that. It is so good to be back here to worship with you all. By this point, it's been almost four months. Four months of married life with my wonderful wife, Kirsty, and also four months over at the bridge as their newest associate pastor. If that sounds like a lot of new stuff, it is. But being able to stay in Wichita has certainly helped with the adjustment. I've been able to see some of you and some of your pastors every week at preaching team. I ran into some of you at restaurants and coffee shops and Costco. And I get to come back and open God's word with you on days like today as we're continuing on in the book of Matthew starting in chapter 21. You can go ahead and turn there now. Every now and then, I'll see a headline in the news, and it'll read something like this. Wealthy Kansas woman leaves all of her $23 million estate to her pet cat. And whenever I read an article like that, I always sit and wonder, what would it be like to be this lady's kid? I mean, how would you feel to be passed up in the inheritance by a cat? Probably not very good. You'd be sitting around in your apartment wondering, did mom like the cat more than me? See, a child has a reasonable expectation to rank at least above the cat. And for the rightful heir to be disinherited, something must have gone terribly wrong. Imagine one night, middle of the night, you wake up and you're getting a phone call from the UK of all places, and it's the queen. Her Royal Majesty, Queen Elizabeth II, she's calling from Buckingham Palace and she wants to let you know that she's decided to name you as her successor. This would be a major surprise, a a complete upset, total shock. Who, Who is this person? How is this possible? Are they even British? What gives them the right to be the queen or the king? It's this kind of surprise that I want you to have in the back of your mind as we read today's passage. Because today, we're looking at three parables, three stories from Jesus. And in each story, Jesus is talking to the chief priests, the elders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious elite, people who more than anyone expected to inherit the kingdom of God. They were the sons of Abraham, the true children of Israel. They had the temple, the law of Moses, the Holy Land. They were the rightful heirs. But in these three stories, Jesus lays out the surprising news that these men, these supposedly rightful heirs, will not be receiving the kingdom of heaven. We'll start today off by just reading the first story, starting in verse 28. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew 21, verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. 
Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This is a simple story with a simple lesson, one that many of you parents might be familiar with. What your kids say they're going to do is not always what they end up doing. One son says he's going to work in the vineyard and doesn't. The other son says he's going to do it and then goes ahead and does the work. Or he's not going to do it and then goes ahead and does the work. The moral of the story is so straightforward that even the chief priests and the Pharisees answer correctly when Jesus asks in verse 31, which of the two did the will of the Father? Uh, The first one. Obviously, the one who actually ended up doing the yard work. One point for the chief priests and the elders. But in their answer, these leaders of Israel were actually convicting themselves. Jesus comes at them with a surprising twist. The first son, the one who does his father's will, you think that's you? You chief priests and Pharisees, you think it's you, but it's not. It's actually the kind of people you'd least expect, the kind of folks you look down on. Jesus says to them in the middle of verse 31, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Why? For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. In other words, these leaders of Israel are the second son, the one who says, yeah, I'll go mow the lawn, but who don't actually get up off the couch to do it. Instead, the ones who are actually doing the will of the Father are the people you'd least expect, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the lowest of the low, con artists, traitors, deviants, fornicators. How in the world is this possible? These people have committed unspeakable sins. They're broken beyond repair. And yet it's they who are going to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because they listened to the message of John the Baptist. What was that message? What is the way of righteousness that Jesus talks about here? The way of righteousness that John showed the prostitutes and the tax collectors. Today's passage is the last time in the book of Matthew that John the Baptist is mentioned. And to understand what's going on here, we need to go back to when we first met John, way back in chapter 3. John, a wild man out in the desert with one simple message. Repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Change your mind. Turn from your wicked ways because when the king of heaven comes, you better be doing things his way. And you know what? People did it. They repented. 
They said, how I've been living is wrong. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm sick of it. I want to do things God's way. His is the way of righteousness. To repent. To say God's way is better. The prostitutes and the tax collectors believed John's message. That God's kingdom was coming. And they changed their minds. They changed their whole lives. They repented. And so Jesus says they are the ones who are going to enter the kingdom. But not everyone responded to John with repentance. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the leaders of Israel, they went out to see John. And even when they saw it, they did not believe or change their minds. They didn't see the need. They thought, we're, we're children of Abraham. We're the true sons of Israel. We aren't Gentiles. We keep the law. Us and God, we're good. They didn't get that in the presence of a holy and righteous God, there is no difference between them and tax collectors and the prostitutes. And so to them, John had the same message. Repent. He said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Don't presume. And so in today's passage, Jesus convicts the leaders of Israel of doing the same thing that they've been doing since the beginning of our story, since the beginning of Matthew. They heard the tornado warning, but they didn't think it applied to them. And so they didn't take cover. They didn't go down to the basement. And Jesus says, they're going to be swept away. And first free, this message isn't just for them. If you're a sinner, and we all are, don't fool yourself into thinking that you aren't in grave danger. Your ethnicity, your upbringing, your neighborhood, your customs, none of those can save you at the end of the day. You say, but... I go to church. My kids only play with other Christians. I, I don't swear. I don't watch secular media. Great. Good for you. But even these things won't do you much good on the day of judgment. Because to enter the kingdom of heaven, you need to do a lot more than just maintain appearances. In fact, you need to own up to the fact that beneath the wallpaper, under the carpet, you are not much different from the worst of sinners. It's in this way that the prostitutes and the tax collectors have an advantage when it's so clear that they ain't living right, when their sin is so obvious that they're driven to repentance. They're not fooled. Don't fool yourselves. Don't cover up your sin. Recognize that you are going the wrong way and repent. Change your mind. Do the Father's will. Because the situation is actually and truly very serious. See, we are not only like the lazy son of this first parable, sitting on a couch, not doing what we're told. No more than just disobedience, we are engaged in open rebellion against God, our master. Which brings us to our second story today. Jesus is about to kick things up a notch. Verse 33. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it 
and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. This would make a crazy news report. Police are still on the hunt for a local Burger King franchisee who has refused to pay rent and fatally wounded several regional managers, including the CEO's son, the Burger Prince. I mean, it's wild. This is outlandish. How could they think they'd get away with this? Why why not just pay rent? How does killing the son get them the inheritance? What, What are they thinking? These tenants are rogues. They're comic book villains. The chief priests and the Pharisees are hearing the story and they're getting mad at the tenants. This treachery demands justice, they think. And so when Jesus asks them in verse 40, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They, the chief priests and the elders, they they say to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the first fruits in their seasons. And Jesus must have smiled at this point because the irony is just palpable. To see why, let's unpack this. Let's try to figure out what this parable means, starting with a few questions. Who's the master? What's the vineyard? What is the fruit? Who are the servants? Who are the tenants? Who's the son? We get a clue, an answer to kind of this whole story out of Isaiah chapter 5, which describes a very similar scene. A man who digs out a vineyard, clears it of stones, plants it with vines, builds a watchtower in it, hews out a wine vat, and waits for it to yield fruit. Sounds pretty familiar. Sounds a lot like the master in this parable. In verse 7 of that chapter of Isaiah, we're told this. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. How do we read this story? The master of the house is God. God, who planted his vineyard, Israel, who filled it with vines, the people of Israel, so that they might produce fruit, the fruit of justice and righteousness. You with me so far? So then who are these tenants who dare to seize the vineyard, abuse the master's servants, and even kill the master's son? These are the leaders of Israel themselves the very people Jesus is talking to right now, the ones who are crying out for justice, for the master to come and kill the tenants. Those who over and over and over again, over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years, killed the Lord's servants, the prophets, 
who are going to kill the Lord's Son, Jesus Christ, in the chapters to come. And just like the tenants in the parable, the chief priests and the elders will think they've won. They'll kill Jesus and they'll think the vineyard is ours now. But they're the real fools. The master will never let them do this. The very same judgment they call down upon the tenants is the judgment that they will receive in turn. But while this parable ends there, Jesus goes on to add another cryptic note. He says in verse 42, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, more literally a nation, producing its fruits. And the one who falls in the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. Who is the stone? The Apostle Peter tells us. Sometime after the events of this book, Peter is going to go and stand before the exact same chief priests and elders, and he's going to declare these words to him, to them, from the book of Acts. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Well, the master's son in this parable stays dead, the real son, Jesus Christ, the stone that is rejected, he will not stay in the grave. The father will vindicate his son in the resurrection and he will become the cornerstone upon whom the kingdom of God is established, a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation. And who will be part of this nation? The prostitutes and the tax collectors those who repent and are built upon the cornerstone as those built up into a spiritual house, those who produce the kingdom's fruits, those who do not withhold from God what is his, but who give him their whole lives by doing justice and righteousness. Friends, if you, like the tax collectors, know that you're a sinner, if you see the depths of your own depravity, and if you want to turn from that, to repent, to reject your old way and run towards God's way. If you believe the kingdom of heaven is near, then I have good news. The kingdom of heaven is already among you because the king has come. If John called people to turn from their old ways, it was so that they might turn to Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. In his death and resurrection, there is true life, true freedom for the sins that bind us. If you want to turn from your sins and turn towards the cornerstone, God's Son, Jesus Christ, then please, I urge you, today is the day. You can talk to me or one of the pastors here at First Free right after service, and we'd love to tell you about the Jesus that we serve. Unfortunately, though, Although they heard this warning, the leaders of Israel did not heed its call. 
Verse 45 says this. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Hey. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Talk about irony. Jesus has just told them that they, the builders, the tenants, are going to reject the Son, and they, because of that, they will be crushed. But instead of listening, they immediately start seeking out a way to arrest Jesus, held back only by the court of public opinion. Jesus has given them full notice, and yet they're bent on rushing towards their doom. And friends, if you do not know Jesus, if you hear this invitation today and you don't respond, then Jesus foretells your doom as well in our third and final parable today. In the first parable, the father asks his sons to tend his vineyard. In the second parable, the father sends his son to collect the vineyard's fruits. And now in our final parable, the father, with all the fruits of his labor, is going to throw his son a wedding feast. Please turn with me to chapter 22, verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Now, right off the bat, this should be ringing bells. If Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, then who is the king, who is the father in this story? It's God. And who is the son? It's Jesus, the bridegroom. In Revelation 19, the angel says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, of Jesus Christ. And when we invite people to accept Jesus into their hearts, what we're doing is we're inviting them to a wedding feast. We're handing out invitations. We're the king's servants whom he sends to call everyone on the invite list, saying, come, the time's here, let's party but many will not come. And so the king gives them a second chance. Verse 4. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Look, guys, come on. I bought prime rib. It's been cooking in the oven, 250 degrees, six hours. The table is set. Everything's ready. Let's eat. For me, this would not be a hard decision. If there's free food, I'm there. God's not asking us to come do hard manual labor. He's giving us a feast. And yet so many ignore him. He's got to ask him twice. He's pleading with them to come. But for some reason, these wedding guests are not having it. Verse 5. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Now, when Kirsty and I got married four months ago, we had a lot of people decline our invitation for any number of reasons. But nothing like this happened to us. Once more, Jesus makes the story go wild, off the rails, to illustrate 
just how crazy these people are being. How crazy it is to reject the Lord's invitation. Some respond to this generous invitation with cruel, unwarranted hostility, seizing the king's servants and killing them. This is what the chief priests and the elders are doing, responding to the king's summons with nothing short of rebellious aggression. It's what so many nations in our world today are doing, taking believers and persecuting them. And you might think, well, at least that's not me. But others who were invited just had better things to do. They had urgent business. They got to take care of the farm. They don't have time for a wedding feast. They don't have time for Jesus. They got more important fish to fry. And the sad thing is that whether you openly oppose God or just simply ignore him, the end result is the same. You won't be going to the wedding feast. If you reject the king, the king will reject you. Verse 7. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. And so with all the noble guests destroyed and burned, God the Father, the King, sends his servants to invite the commoners, the lowly, the tax collectors, and the prostitutes. If we are God's servants, this is our task. To spread the invite far and wide to everyone, and I mean everyone. People high and low, even those who are bad and good. We're called to make Christ known to everyone. And at the end of days, the king will come in and judge between who is and who is not worthy. Verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. This man was received as a last-minute invitation to a royal wedding. Imagine if that were you, a a last-minute invite to Harry and Meghan's big I do. Free food, free drinks, all you got to do is show up. But what if you showed up in dirty jeans and a ripped-up t-shirt? What if you didn't have the decency to go home and change it to something nice, or at least clean? Would you be surprised if security quickly and firmly escorted you out of the building? It would still really be a free invitation. No cover charge, no hidden fees, just come. There would, but there would be some very reasonable expectations. If you don't prepare yourself and act like you're going to a wedding, then you have no business being at a wedding. And folks, Jesus is saying here that the kingdom of heaven is the same way. Come, everyone, come. The spirit and the bride say come. But come ready. Come properly clothed. 
How should we clothe ourselves? What do we wear to the great wedding feast of the Lamb? We don't have to guess. Revelation 19 declares this. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. In other words, yes. Absolutely. Our righteous deeds don't earn us an invitation to the wedding. That's free. That's grace. That's something we could never earn. Nevertheless, we demonstrate that we desire to be at the wedding by our righteous deeds. Kingdom people live kingdom lives. And so we need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We need to produce the fruit of justice and righteousness. Or else we demonstrate that we belong outside the wedding, in the outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The rebellious city burnt to the ground, the doom of those who reject the king and the joy of the wedding feast. I'll close by saying this. In these three parables, Jesus is really calling us to do one thing, to give up our old lives, to stop being God's enemy, to change our minds, to turn in repentance, to do the Father's will, to be built upon the cornerstone, to produce the fruits of the kingdom, to accept the wedding invitation, to put on the clothes of righteousness. All of this, all of these pictures are pointing us towards one thing, life in the kingdom of heaven. A life that could be yours. If you haven't accepted this invitation, today's the day. And if you have accepted the invitation, But if there's any area of your life that is not a kingdom life, think carefully. What clothes are you wearing? Clothes of righteousness or of darkness? I urge you to put on clothes fitting for the wedding feast. Today is the day to repent. For free, repent and turn and find the joy that can be found only in God's kingdom. This is Jesus' invitation to you, and I pray that you will accept it. Let's pray. Well, dear Lord, I thank you that you have given us an invitation. God, that you have sent your servants to call us to your wedding feast that you sent your son to make that feast a joyous one, to die for our sins, to rise again, to give us new life. Lord, I pray that all those who need to hear this message will accept it and repent. God, that all of us, myself included, would turn to you, would seek to put on clothes of righteousness, God, would purify ourselves in keeping with your Son and his kingdom. God, I pray that we would be worthy of the wedding. God, that on the day of judgment, we would be found 
to be in keeping with those who come to your feast. God, we know that we can only do this by your power, and so we ask that you would purify us. God, that you would cleanse your church. And until then, Lord, we pray, come Jesus, come. Amen.